the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We should start, I think, by praising the Lord that we avoided today what the weathermen foretold for us. So on the basis of that prediction, which tells us the weatherman is a false prophet, According to scriptures, we should stone him to death. <laughs> and I'm for bringing that rule back, actually. No, I'm not. Not, not, not weatherman. Some other people, maybe not the weatherman. So our baptism, little Luke, this morning is, is postponed. Even before the weather was announced, I was really wondering about the wisdom of baptizing a precious little child with so cold wonder about that. However, it seems not to have hurt a thousand years of Russians being baptized in icy water. They, be, they seem to be very hearty people and, and certainly keepers of the faith. This morning I want to talk, reflect with you, beloved, on the epistle reading, the fourth chapter of Ephesians, verses 7 to 13. I was rather wondering why they blocked it off, the lectionary people, why they blocked it off exactly the way they did. And I think I know, I'm not positive. Both the first and the last verse of today's epistle reading use the word measure, metron, so that the, this word becomes sort of an inclusio of the section, metron, measure. And I don't often entitle my sermons, but it's going to make it easier for Grace when she posts it if I call this, this effort this morning the measure of grace. Of course, the expression is from the epistle itself, the measure of grace. The dominant statement of the passage speaks of the ascension of Christ as a source of all ministry in the church. All Orthodox churches have an icon of the ascension of Christ, and we are no exception. It's a marvelous portrayal of Christ ascending above the church, and the church gathered below him, surrounded by Our Lady. The passage you read this morning is essentially the first Christian interpretation of Psalm 67, at least 67 in the Greek and Latin texts, and 68 in the Masoretic Hebrew. Later on in volume three of the work that's now being written, I will argue that this is commentary on a hymnic form of the psalm. The church, when it chanted this psalm, changed some of the words and we had that change this morning, where instead of taking booty, he's giving gifts. Even though I understand why this section has been picked out and extracted, it could be argued that it's unfortunate that these seven verses are isolated from what goes before and also from what comes after. The previous six verses or about the unity of the church. We all remember that more famous text, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I mean, it's, a, it's a great, where the word one appears seven times is the number of perfection. And the section following today's reading is about heresy. And I may mention that in point three. This morning I want to talk about three points with you. That the measure of grace is personal. Second, the etymology of vocation. And third, Christian maturity. Now according to the first verse of today's reading, the measure of grace is personal. St. Paul does not use the word personal. In fact, it's a very modern concept, personal. And Paul, did, Paul simply did not think in those terms. Um, but he does have the equivalent, I believe, of what we mean by personal. The first verse begins, Hani de ecasto he mean. Hani de ecasto he mean. To each of us, ecastos. To each of us. Now, the word ecastos, each, is an important description of the life in Christ. The Gospel of John in chapter 10, the, the, the Good Shepherd discourse, Jesus says of the Good Shepherd that he calls his own sheep, ta idia probata. Sometimes I want to translate that idia very literally. He calls his idiot sheep. Because idios means one's own. And an idiot is somebody who belongs to himself. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll leave the regular translation. He calls his own sheep <laughs> by name. Kat onoma. By name. Kat onoma. Now, what Middle Eastern shepherd, what sheep rancher anywhere in the world has a name for each one of his sheep? and can recognize him right away by name. How many shepherds do that? I've always wanted to use the line I'm about to give you now. Back when I was an alpine shepherd, and I think there are probably not very many Orthodox priests in Chicago who could begin a sermon that way. Back when I was an alpine shepherd, but back when I used to tend sheep down in the, in the French Alps, within sight of Mont Blanc. We didn't have any, none of these sheep had names. None of them had names, they're just sheep, just sheep. But the sheep of Christ each, has, each have their own name. This is what the Good Shepherd does. In fact, I hardly heard anything to do with the sheep. I just sort of walked along and made sure that the, the ram did not buck me because he was very jealous of my authority over the sheep. But for the rest, the dogs took care of the sheep, so I just had to sort of watch. Now this is the reason that the Good Shepherd calls each of his sheep by name. This is reason why Christians are named at baptism. And that's very important. The Christians are named at baptism. Now think about this. <clears throat> the Christians being baptized receive their names at the very time 
and in the very act where God is named. See, the newly baptized confesses the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he gets his own name. You've, you've seen it a thousand times, or would have seen it this morning, where the servant of God and the name is given at that time. From that point on, that's his name. Is baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So notice that four names are confessed at each baptism. Four names. You're all familiar here with Rubyoff's angelic trinity. There's the Holy Trinity, the form of the three angels that Abraham received as, as guests. As guess. But notice there's a fourth place at the table. Notice that? There's a fourth place at the table, and it's empty. Because each of us is to find his own place at that table. The communion of the Holy Spirit, the communion of the Holy Trinity, involves ourselves. That's why you receive, you, you receive Holy Communion. You're named. If I don't know your name, I'll ask for it. We adhere to this rule for a basic reason. It says that each of us has his identity in Christ. We are not individuals. Make a, I'm going to make a very important distinction here. It's one that comes from modern philosophy, but uh, a good modern philosophy. Particularly, I, I read it many, many years ago, and a philosopher I like very much named Emmanuel Mounier where Mounier makes this strong distinction between a person and an individual. We are not individuals. We are persons in Christ. See, the government regards you as an individual. The church does not. The government gives you a number, and that number ensures your security your social security. You have to have that number. Government does not give you a name. It's going to try that pretty soon, I think, but perhaps up till now, the government does not give you a name. The government gives you a number. Your family and the church give you a name. See, we are not individuals. We are persons in Christ. An individual is identified by reference to himself. He's an idios. He's identified by reference to himself. A person is identified by his relationships to others. See the difference? The one is in isolation, the other is in society. Individual, an individual claims his rights. A person acknowledges his responsibilities. The government regards you as an individual with rights, which it proceeds to take away. The church does not regard you as an individual with rights. The church regards you as a person with responsibilities. Because there are no individuals in the kingdom of God. In the holy Catholic flock of the Good Shepherd, grace is given to each, says St. Paul this morning, kata to metron, according to a measure. According to a measure. 
That is to say, grace is personalized. The measure of grace is according to each person's vocation. The measure of grace is according to each person's vocation. And that's why the discovery of vocation is absolutely essential to the life in Christ. Which brings us to point two. The etymology of vocation. Vocation is a common word, isn't it? Vocation. It usually refers to some form of work or profession. We speak, say that someone has a legal vocation, or medical vocation, or vocation to be a, a seamstress or a welder. Some folks even know that vocation comes from the Greek, from the Latin rather, voco, vocare, calling. We speak of vocational schools where you learn a trade. It is not often, however, I believe, that they go on to consider the question, if this is somebody's calling, who's calling him? Who's calling him? And those who have read him will recognize I'm following very closely here the thought of Martin Luther. And I just confess it up front. <laughs> when we speak of a vocation, we have somebody in mind who's actually doing the calling. Does the government do the calling? Does society do the calling? I recently finished a fascinating book. The author of the book is a young woman by the name of Winsia Lee. The title of the book is The Girl with Seven Names. You can get it on Kindle, by the way. That's where I read it, the apostolic way of reading on Kindle. The Girl with Seven Names. It's a marvelous book. About a young woman who fled from North Korea when she was 19 years old. And I won't give you the rest of the story, but it is an absolutely fascinating story. Um, she fled to China, which by North Korean standards is a free country. <laughs> okay. She fled to China and eventually ended up in what it really is a free country, and that is North Korea. Oh, pardon me, South Korea. South Korea. You see, in totalitarian society, the government decides everything. The government literally takes the place of God. She describes how in their North Korean home, before they ate, okay, the head of the household very formally thanked the great ruler for what they had to eat. He's thanking the government. I hope we all have icons in our homes before which we, which we reverence, perhaps for war which we pray each day. North Korea, they had portraits of the great leaders. That's the first thing everybody did in the morning before he, when he got up, and right again before he went to bed, is go and bow for the portraits of the leaders. Totalitarian government. The government replaces God in just about any aspect. In Christian theology, our lives and every aspect of our lives is under the governance of God and the Lordship of Jesus. 
He's not just the Lord of Sundays, he, although he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of every aspect of our lives. He is the mark of a totalitarian government that it dictates every aspect of life. See the word total in the word totalitarian? It's total. Full governance of life. You can recognize a government tending to idolatry by the amount of things it takes over in your life, the amount of things it requires you to do. That should make everybody in this room and everybody within the range of my voice very cautious. Government tends to do that. You see, in the time when these things were written in the New Testament, there was a government that kept the population well-fed and well-entertained. And it took over everything else in their lives. As long as they were fed and they were entertained, bread and circuses. And the government provides this, the government gets everything. We still have not answered the question, however, who's doing the calling in a vocation? If vocation means calling, who is calling? Let us return to John 10 and switch from Greek to Latin, since vocation is a Latin word. We'll switch from Greek to Latin. John 10, 10 says of the Good Shepherd, proprias oves vocat nominatim. He calls his own sheep by name, nominatim, kat onoman Greek. The teaching of the Bible, sweet people, that our vocations come from Christ our Lord. He is the one Lord. Remember, Ephesians 4 says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord. Of course, one Lord. That very expression comes from Israel's Shema, doesn't it? Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. The Lord is one. The one Lord. This one Lord not only called certain fishermen to be apostles, he called other fishermen to be fishermen. He calls them according to his plan for them. Each of these vocations, each of these evokings, come from the same good shepherd who calls his own sheep by name. And finally, let's speak of Christian maturity, especially in verses 12 and 13 of this morning's reading. The word metron appears one more time to close off the reading. It speaks of what we're striving for, and that is what? To metron, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, there's a double meaning here. This means, this means the church, because the church is what's perfected, but also means each of us within the church. 
We may be baptized as children, but we must not remain children. We must not remain those in the next verse are called nippee, infants, little ones. We must not remain there. What are the signs of maturity in Christ? Paul mentions stability. It's the mark of someone who's immature, says Paul, and I'm quoting here, I'm translating from the Greek, but it's a somewhat loose translation. Someone who is tossed about, no, tossed around and carried about. Tossed around and carried about. I want you to hear the two, both translations. That's a good translation, ow, ow. Tossed around and carried about. By what? Every shifting wind of teaching. Every shifting wind of teaching. There's the mark of the immature Christian. Someone who's tossed about to and fro with every shifting wind of teaching. Has a new theory. Whatever happens to be in fashion, usually. Whatever happens to be being taught this year. Whatever books happen to be written this year. Wherever the trend is going, the immature person is the one who follows that. Sometimes I hear these, these interviews. Um, who is this fellow? Is it, is it Waters World? He interviews people on the street. Uh, and they were all, and everybody interviewed on the street was, was pretty much an idiot. Everybody, I mean, just did absolutely nothing. So he finally, he, now he's doing all his, his interviews on college campuses and it's vastly worse. Because we expect immaturity in campuses. That, that, that's to be expected. Okay. But the immature person is someone who's tossed about with the fashions. Whatever, whatever they tell you you're supposed to wear, you wear it. Whatever they tell you you're supposed to think, you think it. Whatever is going, you know, whatever, because somebody else is dictating to you. See, that's just the opposite. I'm taking this right out of the epistle of the Ephesians. That's just the opposite of Christian maturity. We're no longer tossed about if we're mature, he says. If we're mature in Christ, we're no longer tossed about. We know who we are. We know to whom we have committed our lives. And we trust in him. We find our, our lives and our fulfillment in him. Amen.